Support for this episode of Script Apart comes from ScreenCraft. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted thing. Fortunately, ScreenCraft is here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. ScreenCraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures starring your favorite writers to hands-on career coaching with their excellent writer development team. If it's screenwriting competitions you're after, well, ScreenCraft offers the best around. Their competitions are specific to genre and judged by Oscar-winning filmmakers and top literary reps. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of ScreenCraft. Winners have been staffed on shows at Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, the list goes on. They've also sold scripts and been hired to write films for the likes of Universal, Lionsgate, Blumhouse and Hulu. So if you're an aspiring writer, what are you waiting for? Don't wait to check out ScreenCraft today. Visit ScreenCraft.org or click the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from our friends at Arc Studio Pro. Arc Studio is the screenwriting software used to create incredible shows and movies, such as the acclaimed Netflix animation Arcane. It has a ton of features designed to unlock your creativity on the page, whether you're a seasoned industry professional or a first-time writer discovering your voice. Arc is all about minimum distraction and maximum ease of collaboration. There's an outlining whiteboard for mapping out your story, automatic draft management for keeping those scripts safe, and it also offers real-time collaboration similar to Google Docs, making it the easiest way to run a professional writer's room or just to write that great idea for a script that you have with a friend. Try it today. Head to arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart, where you can get $30 off a pro account by using the code friends at checkout. Click the link in today's show notes to take your screenwriting to the next level. And we're back. Okay, let's see if I can remember how to do this. I'm Al Horner and this is Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies, returning at last for our third season. If you've listened before, you'll know that this is normally the part where I describe how each episode an acclaimed writer revisits their first draft of what became a beloved movie. This season though, we're switching things up a tiny bit. In season three, by popular demand, I've always wanted to use that phrase, we're going to be covering TV for the first time, alongside our usual episodes devoted to incredible films. Helping us kick off the season in style, holy forking shirt, we're delighted to have with us a true titan of modern TV comedy. Yes, this week we're joined by none other than Michael Schur, creator of The Good Place. Michael's resume is kind of insane. You might know him as the co-creator of shows like Parks and Recreation, Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Rutherford Falls. He was also a key creative force on The American Office during its early seasons. The Good Place is undoubtedly his most personal work though. It's a hilarious, philosophical probing of what it means to be a good person that ran for four seasons between 2016 and 2020. The show starred Kristen Bell as Eleanor, a self-described Arizona trash bag with an insatiable crush on the restless Stone Cold Steve Austin. The show begins with Eleanor dying and awaking in an afterlife that may not be all that it seems. In the conversation you're about to hear, Mike tells me all about his early vision for the show, why his original pilot doomed the Beatles to the bad place, sorry if you're listening Paul and Ringo, and what recently compelled him to write How To Be Perfect, a New York Times best-selling book that builds on the themes of The Good Place. Mike and I talk about the book, the mechanics of sitcom storytelling, the art of the cold open, which is something he's known for, and much, much more. It goes without saying that this is a spoiler-filled conversation. We focus mostly on the pilot, but also touch on plot points from across all four seasons. 
So if you're yet to see the show in its entirety, maybe pause now, then come back when you've seen it. I do not want to be sent to the bad place for ruining it for you. A special thank you to our Patreon supporters, that includes Matt Taff and John Topper. If you like what we do and want to help us continue to grow, you can get ad-free episodes and bonus content by joining us on patreon.com forward slash script apart. All right, that's enough from me. Let's get into it, shall we? This is Mike Sher talking about the first draft secrets of The Good Place. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demack. Mike, welcome to Script Apart. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. How are you doing? I'm doing all the better for, for having you on the show, man. Um, <laughs> I got to say right away that I just finished How to Be Perfect, which well, mm. I absolutely adored insofar as you can adore something that sends you into a bit of a headspin about yeah. the near impossibility of being a good person <laughs> at, well, any time, but especially in our kind of current modern world. I, I guess I'll start by asking whether writing something long form like this, uh, you know, was tricky compared to tackling half hour episodes of TV. Was, was it an endurance test or did it all kind of spill out of you? Because clearly you've had this topic on your mind for a long time. Yeah, I think it's a combo platter of those two things, a little bit of it. Some of it was just it spilled out of me because I've been writing about it and thinking about it, reading about it for a long time. Other parts of it were more of an endurance test because it was new to me. I had never written a book before. And also when you're used to writing things in a room full of 12 really funny people, like the the what happens is you get to a point where you're like, well, this joke sucks. Someone write a better one. And you look around and then someone writes a better joke. And this time I would say, well, this joke sucks. Someone write a better one. And I would look around and I was alone in my house and very scared. And a couple of times, actually, I emailed the writing staff of The Good Place and said, hey, I'm writing this book and I wrote this joke and it sucks. Can one of you write a better one? And then they would send like 10 better jokes in in two seconds. And then that just made me feel like low self-esteem and shame <laughs> because I was like, how, did, how am I not better at this? Um, so there, the, some of it was very difficult, but I enjoyed it. It was a pandemic. It ended up accidentally being my pandemic project because I, I sold the book right. I sold the book in February of 2020. And then I was sort of like, well, how am I going to write this? I don't have enough time. And then suddenly I had nothing but time and couldn't go anywhere else and had no excuses. Yeah. So with COVID, it must have felt like the book you were writing was also kind of playing itself out in the news every single day, right? I mean, the pandemic really did force us to confront questions of utilitarianism, how to be a good person, what it is that we owe to each other, all concepts that you were grappling with in How to Be Perfect. It felt exactly like that. Yeah. I mean, I... I, I've said this before, but it was very hard not to make the whole book about how do we behave during COVID because what was remarkable about it and continues to be remarkable about it is that it, I believe, is the first time in human history that every single person on earth was faced with the same questions, ethical and otherwise, at the same exact time. I mean, we literally had the same problem. That's never happened before. Like, there, every, even World War II or something, you can go back and find countries that were so remote or distant or uninterested in the affairs of the warring nations that they just kind of hung out and waited for it to go to blow over. But there's no hiding from COVID. There's no hiding from a disease that's contagious. So I, it, I, I re had to restrain myself from making every chapter be a, a, an explication of the ways in which various philosophical ideas related to this particular issue, because that would have been mm. really boring. 
Um, it, and it was a, in a weird way, a mirror of the show of the good place, which is the show the book came out of because that show was developed in 2015. And I did not think that we were in this country about to elect a president whose behavior would cause the word ethics to appear in the national discourse essentially every day <laughs> like that, which is what happened, you know, like most U.S. presidents have ethical problems and and lapses and uh, they they do things either in office or before they get to office that that raise all these ethical questions. That's par for the course. But the last president that we had, the one we elected in 2016, whose name I don't particularly enjoy saying out loud, he had a, he was um, a guy whose every behavior for his entire life had led to people saying like, well, is this unethical? The answer was always yes. And so while the show was on the air, we were I was just I just wanted to discuss ethics and as like human behavior on a very small level, you know, uh, uh, the average person living his or her life, going about his or her business, doing whatever we do when we mill around. That's what I was interested in. And then almost exactly when the show sort of came on the air, the word ethics was just being blasted on the front page of every newspaper every single day. And it was a complete coincidence. And the book and COVID felt a little bit like round two of that, where I, again, <laughs> just wanted to sort of discuss this stuff because I find it interesting. And then we all went through something simultaneously that led to people talking about asking these questions all the time. It was very odd. I think on balance, it's bad, right? I think both of those, <laughs> both of those things, the world would have been better off if neither of those things had happened in both the show and the book. We're just like slight little asterisks in the history of the American discourse. But as it turned out, they both mirrored something enormous that was going on in the country and the world at the time that they sort of uh, were released into the public. As you underline in your book, like these are questions about how to live a just moral life that have been plaguing mankind for as long as mankind's been around. Mm -hmm. Like the, the themes of, of the book and The Good Place, they're pretty timeless. But yeah, there was something timely about, about the series that... Really yeah. gave it a sense of urgency that I, yeah, it's it's kind of interesting to contemplate watching it without, but um, that's how it <laughs> that's how it rolled. Um, so Mike, the, the story I've heard, you were stuck in LA traffic one day, and mm -hmm. you know th this is kind of the origin story of the Good Place, and you sort of starting to kind of confront a lot of questions that that filled the Good Place. So you were you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong. You were watching drivers who were cutting each other off or were using the emergency lane because they obviously thought that their time matters more than anyone else's. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you'd kind of remark that, okay, that guy just lost 16 points, that kind of thing. This sort of implication being that we're all kind of winning and losing points in this right. giant existential morality video game that we're all, <laughs> <laughs> that we're all a part of. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to know, like before that point though, were you were you philosophically minded? Were like, uh, you know, as a kid, there's, there's kind of small traces, I'd say, of like these questions in your previous work, but nothing pronounced. So yeah, was that traffic jam moment an epiphany or are you always contemplating goodness and what it means to live ethically? I was always a rule follower. Um, I, I never cut class in high school or college, really. I never, um, I was a good kid. I didn't like break curfew. I, I liked the feeling of knowing what the rules were and then following the rules. And to, to the point, and I, I talk about some of this in the book, but I, I remember being at parties in, in college and there was a noise curfew 
And if like that, you weren't allowed to play loud noise after I think it was 1 a.m. and or midnight on a weekday and 1 a.m. on a wake weekend or something. And if I was in someone else's room and it got past that time, I would start to get nervous. And I, I would I would sort of maybe even on occasion edge over to the stereo and just nudge the music down a little <laughs> bit because I was like, well, the rule is we can't play loud music. after. And like I wasn't going to get in trouble like the people whose room I was in would be getting in trouble. <laughs> And um, as I say in the book, you can imagine how popular this made me in college. Um, <laughs> not very. So the 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 inclination to kind of know what rules are and follow them and understand right from wrong has always been there. And I don't know why. I don't think it's anything. I think this is a one of those chicken and egg things where it's like, is it genetic? Is it learned? I don't know. But that inclination has always been there. And then as I've grown up and... Uh, and I went to college. I took a couple philosophy classes in college. Didn't really, wasn't like obsessed with it or anything. But the the combo platter of learning a little bit of philosophy and then also having this kind of my antenna already being up for these questions, eventually kind of coalesced into something. Like it 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 became a um, it became more of an obsession of mine after I think I got really interested in politics because. I find that the, you know, political ethics are their own animal, but I've, I find political lapses in ethical behavior, unethical behavior amongst politicians to be the most annoying because it's, you're like, I mean, it's, a, I'm hardly the first person to say this, but we're literally electing these people to represent us and they promise certain things every two years or four years and they appear you you give them something very valuable you give them your faith and your trust and your money on occasion and when they do things that are so obviously unethical it feels like a deeper wound to the psyche to me uh if your friend you know does something slightly unethical you're like well whatever that's that's joe he's kind of a he's a, <laughs> he's an he's kind of an idiot and whatever i expect that from him but I didn't like go to a I didn't like take time out of my day and go to a polling station and like pull a lever with Joe's name on it and make him my friend. Like, you know, like there's other things I know about him that that maybe could help me put his behavior into some kind of perspective. But when it's a politician you've elected, it really, really rankles me like the hypocrisy and the cheating and the inside information and the personal gain and all that sort of stuff. So that it really began to kind of take off for me in my, you know, thirties and now forties. And then, yes, I was, I, I had invented this, um, this imaginary video game that I, that I thought we were all playing, or I hoped we were all playing as a, a, you know, I would see someone, like you said, cut me off in traffic and I would assign them negative 12 points. And really that was just a coping mechanism to get through the day because on the average day, we all see so many annoying behaviors exhibited by our fellow humans that if you don't come up with some kind of way to imagine that they are going to suffer for those, for those actions, <laughs> you'll lose your mind, you know, yeah, like, and, yeah. and like literally what I was doing is no different from what organized religion has done for thousands of years, which is imagine that your behaviors on earth will be punished in some, at some later date. I just made it more of a kind of a, I don't know, like a video game, I guess. Um, and then all of that stuff kind of came together. And that's what led me to creating The Good Place and, and eventually writing the book. Let's talk about the development a little bit, because I've got to ask, Mike, like <laughs> when when the show was first announced in, uh, I think it was 2016. Well, 
either the show went through some serious evolution in terms of the premise <laughs> or you were holding back a lot of vital elements because well mm-hmm. i'll just read a little bit from the press release here it says it, it describes a show involving Eleanor, a woman from New Jersey, who comes to realize that she hadn't been a very good person. Mm-hmm. She decides to turn over a new leaf by learning what it means to be good or bad. Ted Danson plays Michael, who comes to be Eleanor's guide through her <laughs> self-designed self-improvement course. So, so <laughs> was that a case of misdirection, you know, wanting to keep the afterlife premise under wraps and, and to kind of focus viewers on the theme of the show rather than the table setting? Or was, was there a really a version early on where, where Michael rather than Chidi was Eleanor's guide? No, um, it is 100% misdirection. So when, <laughs> I don't know what it's like in, in the UK, but when you, when you sell a, TV show or a movie uh, in the States, what happens is people, there's an entire industry, there's a machine that traffics in the information, the inside information about the project. And they want to know, they want to know a few basic things all the time, character names, actors playing those characters, descriptions of those characters, and then plot descriptions. And in this case, I had a show that was set in the afterlife um, I, Ted Danson was going to play an eternal immortal being who, and this is a spoiler. Um, if you haven't seen the show, stop listening now. Um, he was going to appear to be one thing and then be revealed at the end of the first season to be something incredibly different. And I was extremely convinced that there was absolutely no benefit six, eight months out or whatever it was to have anyone know anything about those characters or the show or where it took place or what the point of it was. And so, um, again, you're, I'll remind you before I tell you the story that I am an extreme rule follower. I don't like lying. I don't like cheating. I don't like anything in that realm. But what I realized was that, um, I went back and looked at some of the announcements of other TV shows and movies and stuff. And I realized that like no one ever went back and looked to see how these shows were described when they were first announced, because it's a it's a four hour story that it gets announced. People remark on it for four hours or six hours. And then the next day, eight other things are announced and everybody moves on. And so I started to realize that the way through this was lying. <laughs> I was just going to <laughs> lie like I and I and I was like, you know, I don't think that there's any reason not to, because I don't think anybody has the right to know what the premise of the show is six months before the show comes out. So I was extraordinarily vague, much to the chagrin of the people who pay me um, <laughs> and the, and my agents and managers and people like that. I just was like, I'm going to either be extremely vague or I'm going to lie. So if you look up um, Darcy Carden played a character named Janet and Janet is like a, is the manifestation a physical manifestation of all of the information that has ever existed in the universe. And she's, it's sort of like Siri or Alexa, but in, in a humanoid form. And I had this whole plan for her character and what was going to happen to her. But I didn't, of course, want to say anything about who she was going to be. So if you look at the announcement of Darcy Carden being cast as Janet, it says something like she plays uh, Janet Della Denunzio a violin salesman with a shady past or something like that. I mean, it's the, it's just a straight up lie. And it got reported exactly that way. 
And then the show came out and she obviously was not a violin salesman with a shady past. She was something very different. <laughs> and to this day, no one has ever come to me and said, hey, how dare you? How dare you mislead us as to what <laughs> character Darcy Carden was playing? And I think that what I learned was a, a good and bad lesson. The good lesson was you can get away with that and it will help your show because people won't come draw, jump to conclusions about what it's going to be, that you won't spoil mm. anything. You can actually get to the point where the show is airing and not have people know what it is. The bad lesson I learned is that lying works sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> that it's good that it's good to lie and that you can get what you want out of lying. And so I did wrestle with the decision to do that. But ultimately, I, I feel like it is it's it serves no one to have anyone know what you're working on long before it actually appears and is able to be watched by people. Can we make a show where Darcy plays a violin salesman <laughs> with a checkered past? The joke that we tried to work in for four years, we tried in as a little reference to get her. I like, you know, there's a season again, spoiler apologies, but there's a season where they go to earth and they're pretending to be humans. And I was like, is there any way that I can claim that she, that her job there is that she's a violin salesman? <laughs> I think I was just looking for a way to let myself off the hook for lying to people. But uh, yeah, yeah I bet she would be, I mean, she'd be great as any role, but I would love to, I would love to use that as a starting point. Darcy plays a violin salesman with a shady past. <laughs> so if the... If there wasn't a retooling of, uh, you know, Janet working her backwards from a from a violin salesman, what were some of the kind of, uh, you know, initial ideas you explored that maybe you abandoned, like en route to kind of this amazing premise and, and these characters? Were there any kind of big changes that you kind of played around with before landing on the good places we know it? So for the purposes of this podcast, I think it might actually be more interesting to talk about the entire first season instead of the pilot because yeah. the pilot um, that the, the, so uh, to back up for a second, when I had the idea, when I finally had the idea uh, and I'll describe what the idea was in a second, I realized that it was too risky, both for me as a writer and for the studio and network who were going to make it to move forward until I had a lot more than the idea for the pilot. So the, the, the initial idea I had for the pilot was simply that there is this afterlife um, that's extremely restrictive, that only the very, very, very top point getters get in, and that Kristen Bell would play a character who, through some sort of clerical error, had been uh, given... A, an eternity in this paradise when she was very obviously based on her life ticketed for, you know, the other place, the less, the less good place. And I, and as an, as a, like a, an act one of a pilot, I thought that's really good. That's juicy. The act one break is I'm not supposed to be here. I get exactly how that works. I can see the whole thing, the beautiful Edenic paradise and the, and all of the wonderful people who have, who have deserved to get there. And then there she is, this kind of trashy garbage person who, who definitely didn't. And then I sort of thought like, okay, well, what kind of show does that lead to? That leads to a show where there's a person that she meets who knows exactly what a good person is because that person has spent his life uh, teaching ethics, teaching moral philosophy. And she basically says to him, if you can teach me how to be a good person, if, if I can hide long enough in plain sight and you can teach me how to be a good person, then I will have earned my spot here and I won't have to hide anymore. Okay, good. What kind of show does that lead to long term? Like what kind of what's episode three? What's episode seven? That kind of thing. 
that's where I started to get nervous. And so at a point where I would ordinarily have gone to my bosses and pitched them the show, I thought like, I can't do this yet. If, if I'm pitching Brooklyn nine, nine with Dan Gore, my friend who created it with me or parks and recreation with Greg Daniels, um, I could, we could go to them and say, here are seven characters. Here are the actors we want to play them. Here's the setting. Here's the world. Like you can, you can kind of project forward into how that show is going to unfold over potentially many years. This was very different. This was like heavily serialized and it had all these twists and turns. It felt like lost mm-hmm. or something where you need to know. And in fact, I talked to Damon Lindelof um, yeah. about the show and, and said like, what am I, what, are, what pitfalls am I going to fall into here? And the number one thing he said was you have to know where you're going. And if you don't know what the end point is, um, you will, you'll, you'll tread water and people will get annoyed because that's what happened to them on Lost. So I kept going. I kept working on the show on my own. And I got to the point where um, I came up with the idea that the whole thing was actually, spoiler alert again, <laughs> sorry, the whole thing was actually an experimental torture chamber. And I got to that point by reading about a lot of conceptions of the afterlife in different religions and realizing that they all shared something um, or philosophical writing about religious conceptions of the afterlife all came to the same conclusion, which is any kind of eternity is torture. Like there's mm-hmm. no such thing as an eternity that is even in, in paradise. And certain religions like Hinduism, for example, understand that and you know, you get to the end of that line and then you go back to the, you reset, you go back to the beginning because you can't just be a God forever. It's very boring. Mm -hmm. So I came up with the whole, the the twist that ends the first season. And then I thought, okay, now I can imagine what, how, how this show would continue with the future. So the, the pilot really was only like step one in a very long sequence of steps that then over time, did change and evolve and and kind of uh, I made significant revisions to but the pilot itself was pretty was stayed pretty much the same the whole time that it was in development so that was a very long-winded way of saying <laughs> that we if we want to talk about first drafts then we need to kind of discuss the entire season instead of the <laughs> very first episode yeah sure but you know as you bring it up like that act one break I remember just like the oh shit moment of watching that for the first time but it's funny kind of looking back that setup there is so much comic potential in it that I kind of expected that to 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 be drawn out for the whole season if not the entire show right but instead yeah you kind of race through reveals and as you say in a very kind of lost manner you kind of end pretty much every single episode on some sort of twist or some sort of revelation. Was that kind of driven by putting two and two together, perhaps getting five? Like in my mind, you know, this is a show essentially about death in some ways. It's mm-hmm. That's not a prime time comedy subject matter <laughs> <laughs> traditionally. Was it like, I need to keep this thing moving and I need to keep like the pace up and the story constantly in motion because, you know, it, it is such a risky prospect and it needs to have momentum behind it. What, what was the kind of thinking behind serializing in this way and, and having that number of, of twists and revelations? So um, my mentor in this business was Greg Daniels, uh, who adapted the British office and, um, and created Parks and Rec with me. And he had this theory about TV shows, which I think is really smart. He has a lot of theories about TV shows and they're all smart because he's smart. Um, <laughs> One of them is that the setting for a show should be as bland and boring as possible 
because you what you want is for the characters to be the things that step forward toward the audience and shine and become the things that they attach to. And if you think about what you might consider the greatest TV comedies of all time, things like Cheers and The Office and, um, you know, All in the Family, any of those shows, Friends. I mean, what's the premise of Friends? A group of attractive people live near each other. That's the that's the <laughs> premise of the show Friends, the most, maybe the most beloved sitcom of the last 30 years. Yeah. So when I came up with this idea, I was I heard his words ringing in my ear. And what I was worried about. Oh, so the, the second half of that theory is if you make a pilot with an enormous premise, with this huge, glossy, shiny, shimmering premise, then what happens is that premise burns off after a while and you're and because the audience isn't attached to the characters they kind of get bored it's the same thing every time it's this giant shiny um, setting or locale or or whatever so i the in, in the very beginning when i came to the same conclusion that you just came to which is this is a big comedy idea right a garbagey trashy person is is in heaven essentially and is trying not to get caught that sounds great, but it sounds great as a movie, right? It doesn't sound great as an ongoing concern because if you are in episode six, seven, eight, nine, ten, all down the line, and it's the same thing, she's almost getting caught. She figures out a way to wriggle free. You start to, you just start to get bored because why? Uh, who cares? Like I've seen this before. I've, it's like watching a movie ten times in a row. So. What I felt from the before I even had the big twist at the end of the first season, I I had this real serious feeling that new stuff needed to be happening all the time. That's where Lost came in. That's why I went to Damon, because I, I felt like what was so thrilling about that show when it when it first burst onto the scene was was two things. One is they zeroed in on a different character in each episode and you started to learn who that person was and what that person's life was like and what sequence of events had led them to the be on the plane. But you also were like, now there's a polar bear on the island and now there's a weird smoke monster. And now there's like some weird other people that you haven't seen before. And now like there's a there's you just kept the, the number of pieces. He was putting a new piece on the chessboard every single episode. So I started to think like, well, if I'm going to pull off the same thing comedically, I need the first thing I thought was another person needs to be a mistake. That was the first thing that I like that that um, that I the first conclusion I came to was there needs to be someone else who's like Eleanor, because I what I was doing was creating all of these trying to create these like vectors, these kind of connections between and among different characters. So I came up with this idea that there would be a character who appeared to be an East Asian monk who didn't speak. And then when he finally spoke, he would be even a dumber, garb more garbagey person than Eleanor was, who was like, I don't know what's going on. Everybody thinks I'm a monk. <laughs> and I realized that I could play on some stereotypes, some stereotypes about Asian people, East Asian people specifically, some stereotypes about, um, about the kind of person who might end up in heaven and get this really big, juicy, kind of funny reveal uh, at like three or four episodes in. So I, I just made a sort of making a list of like, what could happen? Like, what are things that could happen? She could get a note under her door that says, you don't belong here. She could um, be assigned to work with Michael to find the person that was causing the problems in the neighborhood. And I, we basically burned through all of them. We did every single one of them in order to try to send the message to people 
that they were not going to watch the same movie over and over and over again, that the movie was going to change and grow and that things were going to happen that would be interesting and would change the, the basic foundation of what they were looking at. Hey, this is Al, just jumping in to tell you about two of our great sponsors this week. If you've written a script and wondering what step to take next, well, you need to check out We Screenplay. We Screenplay not only offers amazing free resources for emerging writers, like virtual events where your questions are answered by leading Hollywood professionals, it's also the industry's number one script coverage service. With incredible 72-hour turnaround and format-specific feedback tailored to your specific goals, We Screenplay is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their career, from first-time writers to Oscar winners. So if your script is ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs, where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned and staffed as a direct result of their real-life industry meetings and hands-on workshops. Don't stay stuck, We Screenplay wants to help. Head to wescreenplay.com to find out more, or click the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from Arc Studio Pro. Screenwriting to me is all about immersion. I want to stay immersed in that dreamy, fantasy-like state while I weave my story and craft my characters. I don't want to be distracted by anything, and I certainly don't want to be thinking about text formatting. Arc Studio Pro understands that. It's so intuitive, it has a minimal and, dare I say, beautiful interface that allows me to stay completely focused on the story I'm trying to tell. To take your screenwriting to the next level, visit arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart, where you can either download a free version or get $30 off a pro account to unlock its full host of amazing features. Use the code FRIENDS at checkout to get that discount. That's arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. It's interesting in this like... uh. In in the draft that I've read of the of the pilot, you know, you there there are some jokes in there that um didn't make the cut. Like uh, I think you mentioned the Beatles being in the bad place, which uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, not a question, more of a comment, Mike. How dare you? <laughs> um, yeah, because uh, Paul McCartney wrote um, "Wonderful Christmas Time." Uh, yep, yeah. that's right. <laughs> this, that, this that's also- been a long. I've been I've been grinding that axe for so long. I mean, look, <laughs> nobody loves the Beatles more than me. Like, I mean, I. I, I, they're, you know, they're a, a, one of the great artistic loves of my life. But wonderful Christmas time, you're going right to hell if you write that song. I'm sorry, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a deal. It's an absolute deal breaker. <laughs> well, I mean, there's lots of things like that. There's, um, you know, uh, there's another joke in here about Sinatra being one of the JFK shooters. Um, yeah. So there's, there's lots of things like that that, for whatever reason, came out. But you know, uh, how did you d- decide, you know, the best way to deploy that and how to not use it as a crutch? Like, I know you'd played around with a similar format in the final season of Parks. Like, how did you kind of work out how how often to uh, to use this here? It's a good question. I forgot about the joke that Sinatra killed JFK. That was a, that was a good one. Um, <laughs> That there was another at, at some other point we may have also cut it. We made the joke that Shirley Temple had killed JFK. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think we cut that one too. That that was like okay. So the main like in terms of tone, right? The the main discussion that I had with the writers and uh, with Drew Goddard, who directed the pilot and was an it was an executive producer on it for for all four seasons. We talked about tone so often because tone is the slipperiest and most maddening aspect of a show. And what we sort of arrived at, we arrived at two conclusions. One of them was that 
that kind of joke, the kind of joke that's like, hey, do you want to know the truth about the JFK assassination? It turns out it was Frank Sinatra. Just had to be used very sparingly because those jokes are just they're a dime a dozen and they all kind of make me laugh. And they're also the kind of thing that the audience will get very bored of very quickly. Right. And I think that the fantasy of of dying and going to some kind of paradise and having Janet be there and calling being able to call Janet whenever you want and saying like, hey, when I was in third grade, I lost my baseball cards and I never found them. Where were they? And then she says like, oh, they accidentally got thrown at your uncle accidentally threw them in the trash. Like those there is a real um, fantasy dream aspect to how wonderful that would be to just solve all of life's little mysteries that you didn't know, whether they're who killed JFK or what happened to my baseball cards. So we just decided we'd had to be really surgical when it came to that kind of joke. The other thing we went through was um, in the pilot, basically the way that the the, the pilot sort of uh, culminates is that Eleanor shows up and is not supposed to be there and does a bunch of bad stuff. And <clears throat> excuse me. And the whole place goes haywire, right? It's like the, the, the entire neighborhood is there's like a virus in the software and all this chaos happens. This giant ladybug terrorizes the neighborhood and all of these things like explode and flowers come to life and start eating each other. And that's how Eleanor realizes the true stakes of her hiding there is that because the place was designed for good people and she's not a good person, she, her, her bad actions will lead to this kind of chaos happening. And obviously it's all in the service of Michael tormenting her and torturing her. But in that, so we wrote this chaos sequence and it was with the, with Drew who's directing it. It was the biggest kind of, you know, most expensive kind of enormous thing that we were doing and we, he and I sat down one day and we made a list of just funny things that we could see. And um, we had, at one point we had two men in like 18th century, like dangerous liaisons era <laughs> uniforms, having a sword fight and yelling at each other in French. And um, with, but they had, their heads were like, were like dragon heads or something. And we had an, a, a translucent octopus floating through and like talking to people and stuff. And it was all making us laugh. And it was really funny in our brains. And then, and we actually shot some of it. Like we had two, we hired two professional sword fighters <laughs> to come and dress up in dangerously <laughs> costumes and have a sword fight. And Drew shot that on of camera. And Then we looked at the whole thing and we were like, well, this is ridiculous. Like, this is just gibberish, right? It's nonsense. It doesn't have any relevance. It's just crazy flights of fancy that that don't feel funny, really, because they don't have any connection to anything real. And and we came to this conclusion way too late. All of the chaos had to be about the bad things that Eleanor had done. It's such an obvious conclusion and if I had were more on top of my game, I would have realized this months earlier and saved everybody a lot of time and money. But it was like it, the, like the nickname that she calls she calls Tahani, the character Tahani, a, she, a butthead, did, right? Well, she called so in the original version, she called her a butthead, and then she saw Tahani walking around, and her head was on her butt, and we shot that too. We shot like a <laughs> thing where Tahani's head was on where her butt should be, and she had no head, and she was going, "What's going on? What's going on? What's going on?" and 
and it didn't look good. It was like, it was, it's a very hard, it's a harder effect to actually (laughs) uh, uh, enact than it is to dream up. But I was like, okay, go back. And we're going to, she also calls her a giraffe. And what will be much better is if we just have a bunch of giraffes running around and terrorizing the neighborhood, because that is just a more obvious thing. Like she's, she's used to, it's like that ridiculous giraffe. And then there's giraffes running around and she, the things that roll down the street aren't bowling balls or something. They're the pill bottles that Eleanor sold when she was uh, on earth. So it was a good lesson to learn both about like the tone in terms of how wild and crazy things should get, but also these things don't matter. They don't, they don't have any actual relevance or connection or, or emotional resonance unless they're things that Eleanor has done specifically in over the course of the pilot. And that was a, that was a really good lesson to learn that early because when you're in a, in a world where there are essentially no rules, right? It's the afterlife. Anything is possible. You can, Michael or Janet can snap their fingers and anything can just pop in. It was a good lesson about keeping that under a lid so that it didn't spiral out of control. And also the only things that will matter are things that are either just on their own or funny or more importantly, if they have some kind of actual connection to the characters and the story you're telling. Um, and so that was a that was a harsh lesson to learn. We wasted tens of thousands of dollars of NBC's <laughs> money before we, <laughs> before we learned that lesson. So any aspiring filmmaking filmmakers listening, if you're going to make a character literally have a butthead, go practical. It's an expensive and difficult shot. It's very, do. very difficult okay. to do. Yes, Lessons I would not recommend. Yeah. <laughs> If you so, if you take nothing else from this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of tone, I guess that's why um, there's, there's a joke in, in the draft where um, <laughs> I see why it would have come out and I can imagine it came out for uh, tone reasons. There's, there's a joke in this cold open in which Eleanor can't stop farting and has to drink some kind of like magical blue liquid to deal with a condition called post-revelation gas explosion and (laughs) i kind of love the alternate reality in which this show dealing in cartesian principles and deontology and all these uh you know big uh heady philosophical arguments seldom seen on primetime tv before i I love the idea with of opening with a barrage of fart jokes um but i can see i can see why it didn't happen but while we're on the topic of cold opens mike like obviously like parks and rec Brooklyn Nine-Nine, The Office, these shows all were kind of renowned for their cold opens. Mm-hmm. And uh, the cold open here is is just so fun. You know, it culminates with Eleanor going, did I have my purse with me? Oh, nope, I'm dead. Right, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> What's the secret to a, to a great cold open, would you say? Well, uh, so two things. One, that thing about her uncontrollably farting was pure <laughs> fear on my part, right? I was like, the, the cold open of this pilot and of the whole show is this woman is dead and she's in some kind of crazy pe- eternal paradise. And um, it was, and there's a discussion about like which religion was right in terms of how they conceived of the afterlife. Like there's a lot of pretty, like it's a lot of big swings being taken very quickly and I, I remember writing that and thinking, like, I want to send the message to people who might be saying, like, oh, what's I like Kristen Bell. I like Ted Danson. What's this show about? Like, I didn't want them to think, oh, I'm in some kind of um, religion class in college and I'm going to have to 
do homework. Like I was like, I, I maybe I need to do like the dumbest joke I can think of um, <laughs> that in order to just send the message, like, don't worry if you're just looking for comedy, you're also in the right place, you know? <laughs> and also I, and then and it also happened to fit in with the big long game that I was playing where when you look back, I needed everybody to look back on everything uh, at the end of the first season when the big twist happens and think like, is it consistent? Were they actually being tortured? the whole time. And that was the perfect kind of thing that would be like, yeah, he was just messing around with her. Right. He was just making her fart for no reason just to embarrass her and to make her, uh, to like sort of torture. Um, but I cut it because I was like, I need to trust that the premise is interesting enough to, you know, to sustain, uh, at least two minutes. If I can't get through two (laughs) minutes of people before they tune out that I'm in trouble, but in terms of the cold open. So on those other shows, um, like the perfect comedy cold open in my mind is like a sketch. It's a, um, I started at Saturday night live. A lot of the other writers have worked in that. I work with have worked in late night and a perfectly executed, like 90 second sketch. That's one idea, just one comedic idea executed quickly and swiftly and efficiently that has a big final joke. That's like a blow before you go careening into the main you know, opening credits of the show. That's a perfect cold open. As time has gone on, it, you know, we're, we're really crunched for time on network shows over here. It's 21 minutes and 30 seconds per episode. And what often ends up happening is you have to put an element of the story into the cold open because you just don't have time to have a standalone sketch and then start your story in act one. So we would often shoot a cold open and then cut it and move what would be normally the first scene of the show into the cold open. After a while on parks and recreation, we just started writing the cold opens as, as the first scene of the, usually the a story. Um, But there are many that we wrote on that show too, that uh, Brooklyn was, Brooklyn was more committed to it. Brooklyn really had, and that's really about that's Dan Gore's show. You know, he and I created it together. I left after a couple of years but they were really committed to like, we are going to do a 60 second or, or 80 second comedy sketch at the beginning of every episode. And I think people really love them. I think they're really, they're very memorable. The, the one that they did where Jake Peralta is watching uh, is in a lineup, a criminal lineup and the, the <laughs> criminal. Who com- yes. They start singing. <laughs> I want it that way by the Backstreet Boys. Like that is just an all time classic cold open. Like you'll never, yeah. in terms of pure, pure uh, comedic idea and execution. Like you'll never beat that, I think. So when they work, they're just wonderful because it's like a, you know what it is? It's like an amuse-bouche in a restaurant. Like you go to a nice restaurant and you're excited about your meal and you order all this food and you're so excited for the food. And then the waiter comes and says, here's a little extra thing we're just giving you. It's a tiny little delicate piece of pastry that has like a cool interesting flavor to it and you didn't order it you didn't expect it but there it is and you eat it and it's delicious and you're so happy (laughs) and then you get the whole meal that you ordered (laughs) you know that's what a great cold open is when it when it works really well it's like this bonus it's just like a bonus chunk of comedy that you that you get before you are even in the middle of the story that you're about to watch so in this pilot script elena describes her parents as being dead and having been wonderful people, which of course, well, as the show goes on, we not only discovered that they're not dead, but uh, we we really learned that Eleanor's mum was in fact not wonderful, not in the slightest. That becomes a really key insight into the character of Eleanor, like her her whole no bullshit attitude and the extent to which she lives life 
like, you know, with her guardrails up. That's very much a product of her relationship with her mum. So yeah, Mike, I'm curious, like, how much of, uh, you know, the the relationships you were going to explore and the mythology of the good place you were going to explore, how much of that did you have mapped out as you tackled this pilot? Like, did you know you were going to explore Eleanor's parents? Did you know that the end game was going to be Eleanor and co kind of exposing the flaws in the entire afterlife system? How much of the destination did you already have in mind at this early, early point? Some of it was, some of it was just a vague idea. Um, that the idea that the system by which they're being judged is itself deeply flawed. I, I knew that I didn't know that it was going to become the sort of focus of the show. Um, but I knew because I, I had been reading all this moral philosophy and over and over again, having the experience of thinking like, okay, this philosophy makes a lot of sense. And then I would read critiques of that philosophy and go like, oh yeah, those critiques also make sense. <laughs> and starting to come to the conclusion that there was no way that you can mathematically approach the concept of morality. It's just impossible. It's too gray and too mushy. And there was no theory. If there, if there were one theory on morality that were mathematically provable, that's the one we would have adopted by now, right? Like all the other ones would have gone away. (laughs) So, so some of that was, some of that was lingering and was very much in the first season. Like, we'll get to that later. Like put, put that aside. We'll, we'll come back to that. The thing about her parents was um, the only character I would say that I really went into great detail on in terms of backstory was Eleanor before writing the pilot, because I thought like, okay, what kind of person is this? This is a person who, her essential attitude, which she expresses many times, is I don't owe you anything and you don't owe me anything. That was the way she lived her life. That was the that was the credo, the the her her the essence of who she was. And so we needed to create a version of a woman like that who would still potentially be uh sympathetic to an audience, right? You you don't want the audience to hate the main character, even if you're starting her out in this terrible place. So the kind of person that she was led me to the idea that her parents were just disasters, that they were they were bad people, that they had been narcissistic, that she had had to develop, like you say, all of these coping mechanisms and these self-defense mechanisms, and that she realized at a very young age that her parents, the people charged with protecting her and keeping her safe and happy and warm, had failed, and that her entire life had been one of putting on suits of armor and fending off anyone who tried to get close to her. So we made her parents both dead in part because I wanted the story to be, they did a terrible job and then they disappeared and she was just abandoned. She was on her own. There was no one around looking after her and all of the lessons that she should have learned about how to, how to like coexist with people and how to rely on people and and what it's like to have other people rely on you and all that sort of stuff that went out the window at a very early age. And so I had this backstory for her, which we then explored later in the season, which was her parents were nightmares. When she was like 14, she emancipated herself. She lied on an application and got a job. She moved into an apartment by herself and was just the, her whole life was like, this is the only way through this is to just don't trust anyone but yourself. Don't rely on anyone. Keep all, keep everybody at arm's length, make no apologies for it. No one's looking out for you, all that sort of stuff. So we made both her parents dead. And then I realized in the third season that I really wanted one of her parents to still be alive and was like, uh Oh, 
And so then we came up with the story that her mom had faked her own death and <laughs> abandoned her, which luckily fit exactly into the design of the kind of parent that we were suggesting that she had had all along. So um, that wasn't a case of like uh, of that. That was a case of like, I think it was the right decision in the moment to say that in the pilot. And then later we just found a little loophole of how we could how we could get her back into the fold Um and have Eleanor actually interact with her, which which she then did to great effect. You can kind of see how you built the other characters in the ensemble out from Eleanor. You can see yeah. how Tahani is is Eleanor's opposite. And mm-hmm. you can see also, you know, you mentioned about how it would be great fun to have someone else who's in a similar situation. That's how you come up with with Jason. And then, of course, you have to have, to have Chidi, who would be, you know, the the kind of emo- uh, spiritual guide, philosophical guide for Eleanor. But it's it's interesting, kind of, we should touch briefly on the the ensemble. And I'm, I'm curious especially to know about Jason. We touched on him earlier, and you've described him previously as, you know, you wanted to create a character who made Chris Pratt's character in Parks look like a member of Mensa. That's <laughs> and um, <laughs> I love Jason so much. And obviously he isn't the smartest, uh, you know, he's not the smartest, but there's something consistent with the rest of your work, you know, across all these shows where even though he isn't uh, smart, even even though a lot of jokes are about how he doesn't understand a situation or can't comprehend something, it never feels mean-spirited. And I was curious if you had like a philosophy about kind of striking a balance in in those terms, you know, never, never punching down, always keeping a sense of kindness to your work, even when you're sort of, yeah, dealing in those kind of jokes. Yeah, that is my f- preferred method of humor. I don't like insult humor that much. I don't like people being mean to each other for no reason. However, it is also true that there has never been a great comedy show without a dumb guy. It just, there has to be a dumb guy. It's just a dumb, Greg Daniels also used to say, dumb is the nuclear weapon of comedy. Like there's not, it just obliterates everything else. It's always the funniest joke is the dumb guy. And so I try when I create dumb guy characters to make them slightly more interesting than just only being dumb, right? Like Jason Mendoza by far is the most emotionally intelligent character on the show. There are moments in the show where he is the only person who understands the feelings that other people are having. And, and he's also the most warm hearted by far. He's the most genuine and sincere by far. And he's also utterly unabashed in the way that he moves through life. Like he doesn't feel any sadness about how dumb he is. He and and he doesn't particularly care. Um, but there's a moment in um, he and Tahani have a have a have a fairly substantial, although in the world of the show also fairly brief, uh, actual romantic entanglement. And it happens because Tahani's miserable. And he's the only one who really sees it. And what the advice that he gives her is that she is thinking about the um, she's she's hung up on the wrong things. And Andrew Law, one of the writers on the show, wrote this scene and it's so good. And what he says to her is you should be nicer to yourself, which is advice that that everyone should probably take all the time. Like, you know, I mean, not everyone. Some people are super into themselves and those people can also be annoying. But when we are really hard on ourselves, um, it's often for things that um, that we shouldn't be hard on ourselves for. And 
he, I remember just loving the way that Andrew phrased that because it, not just because it was good advice, but because it really spoke to like what was good and interesting about Jason beyond the fact that he wasn't very bright. And I really love when people who are deficient in one character trait are then have another one in, in ample supply. And I, and I always loved the moments where Jason proved himself to be a person worthy of time and attention and friendship for the other people in the show. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, he, Manny, Manny Jacinto is just a, a singular kind of performer. I don't know that I've ever seen anyone else quite like him. And that character was originally conceived of as much more of like a bro, like a kind of fratty, um, just kind of asshole, honestly. And Manny gave the, uh, this, uh, we wrote this audition scene, all the audition scenes were fake. Um, because I didn't want any details leaking out. And we wrote this audition scene where he had invented a combination mouthwash and body spray. Uh, and he was, he was, uh, he was angry at his uh, roommates because his roommates who were going in on it with him didn't believe in it as much as he did. And the scene was very much like three meathead frat guys kind of like jawing at each other. And when Manny read the audition, he got legitimately emotionally upset. He was like crying at the lack of faith that his roommates had in this ridiculous <laughs> body spray slash mouthwash. And it was so funny. And he was the only one who did it like that. He was the only actor who like made this kind of wonderfully vulnerable choice. And it we watched it in the room, in the writer's room, like 50 times. And because I was like, this is the guy we got to write to. Like, this is... I had an idea in my head of what this guy was going to be. And this actor did it better than I had it in my head. And we should junk what I had in my head in favor of this actor, because <laughs> he's that version of this is so much more interesting and so much funnier and more lovable than the guy I had conceived of. And so we really like, we kind of, we threw out about how we kept that he was really dumb and he was from Jacksonville and we replaced that he was an, an asshole with that he was like a, a like a sweet and vulnerable person, and I think that is the difference between a stock character who is just two dimensional and kind of okay and fine and can get laughs, and a character that you eventually fall in love with and really care about deeply. And we've talked a lot, Mike, about like this pilot episode in the beginning of the Good Place, but to skip forward to to the ending, I don't want to make any assumptions about your relationship with the show, but you know. It, it's your show, you know, it wasn't co-created with anyone. The themes of the show are so close to your heart. You've literally just written a book with them. There was obviously <laughs> something that you, you couldn't shake about it. Mm -hmm. I can imagine it being uh, a, a really emotional story to bring to a close. How, how tricky was that final episode for you? Very. Um, you know, the, the show was largely about Western concepts of moral philosophy. You know, it was Aristotle and Kant and the utilitarians and people like that. And all the way right up through the second to last episode, we were still talking about that stuff. We were still, Lisa Kudrow was playing Hypatia of Alexandria, a Western <laughs> philosopher um, from the BCE era. And we were still talking about conceptions of, of eternity and morality and everything else. But for, for a, more than a year, we had been to also talking about the very end. And it, I felt like at the very end, all that stuff went out the window. Because as you said at the beginning of this podcast, 
the show is essentially underneath everything else about death and that what needed to happen at the very end is they all needed to say goodbye. And we needed to get a sense of there being something meaningful about what they had been through. Because if there was nothing meaningful about what they had been through, then, okay, that was a fun story. Who cares? Like, you know, um, it needed to point forward a little bit in an emotional way and a, and a spiritual way, I would say, and not in a dry academic way. So we started talking a year earlier about what kind, what that would look like. And some of it kind of clicked into place fairly early because like I said before, all of these conceptions of the afterlife that deal with eternity and all philosophical investigations of those eternities come to the same conclusion, which is if you do anything long enough, it gets boring. So we had come up with the idea that there would be a way that they would change, that they would get to the actual good place. They would see that everybody's miserable and then they would allow there to be a final step past the concept of eternal happiness. And once we did that, then it became, then it was a simple jump to saying like, well, that's what the finale is. The finale is everybody says goodbye one by one. Like they just, they come to a point where in some kind of inexplicable ethereal way, they feel like they're done with their journey and then they move on. And the ironic thing was that when I realized that's the direction we were heading, I thought like this show has never actually dealt with death. They all died on earth. That's how you meet them. But we've never talked about death and what it means for the people that get left behind and what it means for people who are sort of contemplating that moment in the future and all that sort of stuff. And so we were able at the very end in this, I think, very lovely way to go all the way back to the beginning and say, like, you know, all that stuff that we skipped over. Now that's the point. The point is now that we're saying goodbye and that the characters have um, affected each other's lives in certain ways that allow them to feel okay about about the, the their friends leaving them. So the the conception of it was was sort of hard in a sense because it required us to do a lot of things we hadn't been doing. The writing of it was real hard because yeah. that was a real like man. If if we're you know, a, there's a, a couple things about it were hard. Number one, it's going to be really sad. Like we're ending this comedy show in a really sad way. But also we are not, um, we can't really rely on a lot of the stuff we've been relying on to guide us, which is why in the, there's a scene with Eleanor and Chidi where they're saying goodbye because Chidi's leaving the next day. And um, she actually says to him, like, this is sad like, do you have some kind of philosophy, like some kind of John Locke quote or something that I can hold on to? And he literally says to her, like, those guys are rules and regulations. Like if you for, for stuff like this, you got to turn to the east. And it was the first time that we had explicitly gone eastern in the philosophy because things like Buddhism are much better at comforting people than than the rules and then, you know, Manuel Kant is not going to sit by your <laughs> by your hospital bed and hold your hand as you're as you're moving on into the afterlife. Like. He just that's not what his thing was. Their thing was about how we act on Earth and the and the Buddhists specifically are the the people that I have turned to in my life in moments of great sadness and and um, and in discussing the transition moments from from life to death and other things like that. So it, it was very tricky and hard, but I um, I'm very happy that we did it because I feel like it ended the show in a way that felt very 
heart-wrenching instead of very academic. And the sh- a lot of the show had been pretty academic. And um, I think that when things end, you don't need a professor. You need like a friend to hold your hand. And I, that was the vibe we wanted was like the show is going to hold your hand a little bit as it's ending and, and, and give you some comfort uh, when you look to the future. I think I misspoke earlier when I said that, you know, death isn't something you see uh, on primetime TV much, that that is of course <laughs> true, but death isn't something as a culture that we're particularly like well-versed in talking about. No, and, um, no. you know, pretty recently I, I had someone I know die and there, I, 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 I do think that the, the good place gave me a framework for thinking about it or thinking about death that I didn't have prior to the show and I'm, that I'm mm. very grateful for. So I guess like I, I, to kind of start to round out this conversation, Mike, I'd be really curious to know like what your hopes are. And do, do you kind of hope that that's a legacy of the show that you kind of gave people a means to talk about death or think about death and to bring some levity to it? Because, you know, even sort of post COVID, you know, after two years, just surrounded by reminders of our mortality, you know, we're still not particularly equipped to talk about it or think about it and, and be honest about it. Do, do you kind of hope that the good places a show was able to move the needle in that sense? I do, honestly. Um, you know, it wasn't the goal we started with. The goal we started with was to ask questions of how we might be a little bit better today than we were yesterday and how it that that ethics and morality is like a filter that we should put into our brains in order to kind of self-interrogate and and examine our own behavior and potentially make slightly better choices knowing that it's futile and that you're still going to screw up and cause pain and harm and suffering because that's just the nature of existence is you you're not going to get it right you're going to maybe if you're lucky and if you're if you're careful and you're deliberate you can get better but you're not going to get it right that was the original stated goal at the end especially from the time that we really started talking about the finale that did become a goal because i think you're right we are uniquely terrible at talking about death death is something that is embarrassing and shameful and painful in our culture and that has a it it's it's very odd it has a stigma to it even though it's a thing that has happened to or will happen to yeah. quite literally every single yeah. one of us it's other than COVID, it's probably the only thing we can guarantee we will all live through uh, or experience. And I, I will say that one of the most rewarding things about having worked on the show is that a number of people have contacted me or reached out to me in some way or to someone who worked on the show to say exactly what you just said, which is that that episode and that moment specifically of Chidi relating the metaphor that Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese monk, first sort of designed about a wave returning to the ocean um, and that being a different way to think about death, um, that that brought them some comfort or or um, some calmness in a, in a turbulent moment. And that is a, a lovely thing to hear um, for obvious reasons. And I, I, I don't know if that is the, I don't know if any show has any kind of legacy. I don't know what that means. Really. I think that the, we're drowning in content right now. (laughs) There are 27 new shows per hour that come online on any number of streaming services. And the idea that anything will um, be permanent or will survive the sort of tsunami of content that we've undergone in the last decade or so 
I think it's a it's a fool's errand to try to guess what what will be still watched five, 10 years from now. But if any part of the show survives um, and is becomes part of the lives and and understand the and the ways that people understand their existence, I think I would ultimately, in a weird way, prefer it if that were what survived than if the than if the ethics survived the because there are other places um, in pop culture that you can see examinations of good and bad behavior you know you can watch breaking bad and you can draw conclusions about the ways that we make choices and the ways that we morally speaking throw throw good money after bad after making bad decisions and that sort of thing um but uh, but i think that the there aren't many shows at least comedy shows that are going to traffic in philosophical approaches to death and transition in the way that we did at the very very end so you know, uh, I mean, look, there are also a ton of shows that talk about death. There are shows that explicitly talk about death. There are entire premises of shows that are about coping with death um, and how you move on after someone close to you dies. Like there are that that's a very common refrain. But I did find that like the thing that most people took the at least the thing that the most people come to me to talk about at the end of the day um, is that moment and in, in that episode. So that's lovely. I'm very happy if that's the case. This uh, conversation has gone from talking about the best way to sort of realize a person having a butt on their head to the <laughs> grandest conversations about uh, mortality. Well, you um, can also see why I, I maybe wrote a scene where Eleanor was farting uncontrollably, right? Like if, you, if you're, if you're going to head in this direction, you you have to have something to keep people uh, keep people watching. Yeah, yeah. Well, Mike, this has been so much fun. Um, just to finish, one of our Patreon supporters, Even Mirko, wrote in to ask... Um, when they think of your work, they think smart comedy, and uh, they, they were curious to know if you had any aspirations to write a smart thriller, a smart horror, or a smart sci-fi one day to maybe expand beyond comedy and expand beyond TV comedy. Well, that's very that's flattering. Thank you, thank you, Patreon supporter. Um, I one of the reasons that I wanted to do the Good Place is because it was an idea that was markedly different from the ones that I had had before. And that it, I mean, I think it's fair to say it is sci-fi. It's a sci-fi philosophical comedy, I guess is what <laughs> sure, it is. Yeah. Um, it's a, which, and sci-fi is a genre I adore and consume a lot of in both movies, TV shows, books, everything. And I really enjoyed it. Uh, and I enjoyed the novelty of it for my own life. And it has made me, focus more on the idea of writing things other than the kinds of things that I've already written. So the next thing I'm doing is I'm adapting the movie Field of Dreams yeah. into a limited series, um, which, I'm, which I'm working on now, which will be out probably next summer. And that's wildly different in part because it's not per se a comedy at all. Like I, I, it has certain elements of levity and lightness to it and, and, and it is also a little bit science fiction. It's a little bit of everything, but it's also, but it's, it's not anywhere close to the kind of thing I've written before. So yeah, I, I think I've been doing this long enough now that, that, um, branching out is the thing that feels risky and exciting and scary. And that is, uh, that's as big a draw as anything else to me to just try something new. I think that it, 
um, it's like the, the fear of failure is very, um, enticing to me, you know, like I, that I, I, the, the feeling of like, Oh, I, this could be really, I could really fall on my face here. <laughs> that, that's a really exciting feeling. And, and I think it's what drives people very frequently to, um, to branch out because there, I think, uh, apathy and, and kind of like, um, laziness are, are death knells for writers. Like, I, I think you can, if you know, you can just do the same thing over and over and over again and make a very good living. But at some point, if you, if you're not, if you're not like emotionally connected to whatever it is that you're doing, then what's the point of this? Like, I would so much rather take a huge swing and fall on my face than just play it safe and try to do the same thing over and over again. Cause there's just no, there's no value in that really, except like capitalistically. (laughs) So, so yeah, I, I, I hope that that is the the thing that I get to keep doing. I mean, the problem, of course, is if you do fall on your face and you fall on your face enough times, then you don't get to make anything. <laughs> <laughs> people stop people stop paying you to make stuff. So, um, yeah, I, I hope I don't. Uh, I hope I don't fail to the point where I my uh, my license to create TV shows gets revoked and I have to you know, become a veterinarian or something. <laughs> well, A, your track record suggests that's probably not going to happen, Mike. And B, if it does, you've always got the violin saleswoman with the checkered yes. past to fall back Can on. Always go back. Always, always go back to that gem. Hit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mike, I'll let you go. But man, thank you so much for this. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for coming on Script Apart. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.